Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I'm one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of one of the games, and I make role-playing games. And I'm here with my co-host, as always, Craig Campbell. Hi, Craig. Hi, Jess. Uh, yeah, I'm Craig. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, and um, I make tabletop role-playing games and occasionally get nominated for Ennies for them. Because we're still, as we record this, we're still rolling into Gen Con next week. Yeah. And I believe this will probably come out after Gen Con. So right now I am Schrodinger's award winner. I have, <laughs> I, I have both won and lost. Um, <laughs> so by the time you hear this, I will already, I will know, but as I record, I don't. At the end of the episode, you'll be prompted with, <laughs> with a link. Did Craig win Yenny or did he not? And it will be a choose your own adventure type. It's part of this weird ARG we're trying out. <laughs> Oh boy, that would be something if we had the time, right? But we're here with a guest, as always. Um, hello, Callum. Hello, that's the sound of my GNT. Uh, don't yeah. Google it if uh, you are <laughs> and below the required age. Um, yeah, I'm Callum from the probably London-based The Released podcast. And, uh, but here today, I'm a bit more of a um, young, well, not so young, young in the field of uh, game design. Uh, I released my first game, Paris Gondo, The Life-Saving Magic of Inventoring, a year or two ago, and I'm now working on a potential Kickstarter for it uh, next summer. So so all exciting stuff. Yeah, and if you're you're listening to this and you think, wait, released a game and now you're working on a Kickstarter for it, we're going to talk about that today with our our, uh, game design topic. I think that's a very interesting um topic to get into but thanks I hope for so. yeah I, hope so. I mean it's it's something I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and, and that way of doing things uh i've heard of a couple of times and uh, uh more about that later but one time actually it was a big encouragement for me to hear a uh, established professional talk about it but uh, yeah so what's the topic actually yeah. Uh, well, before we get into oh. that, we have a game design uh, or a GMing topic first mm. to get into. Craig, what are of we talking course. about first? Um, yeah, we're going to talk about structured storytelling in uh, in your game um, and kind of setting that up as a GM. And I'm going to put like the basics of it out there and then hand this over to Kellum um, because this was also your suggestion um, for a topic. And make sure that we're clear on kind of what you were thinking and we'll, what we'll talk about. But the idea that the player group, and then that includes the GM, buys into the idea of certain elements of the story being there, certain beats, certain plot points happening, certain, a certain structure to the game, as opposed to broad, wide open sandbox where people go and do absolutely anything they want. There's kind of an expectation that you're going to hit certain things and um, implementing that as a GM and getting the players on board. Is that is that an accurate representation? Do you want to expand on that? Yeah, I think it's quite good. Yeah. The, the thing is, it comes both from, uh, on one hand, one experience with a, for lack of better term, trad game, uh, Star Trek Last Unicorn Games. Uh, I, I mean, with trad games, especially, uh, there's always the issue of the, the denouement, the campaign which never ends or people stop meeting. You, you don't really have the satisfaction of the arc when you do it. It's very exciting, but very often it's not happening for a number of reasons. And a lack of structuring element of a framework agreed between uh, the game master and the player, I think, helps make that happen. And when I was game mastering uh, that edition of Star Trek set in, the, in Starfleet Academy, uh, it really helped that had a episodic structure and a, a very clear structure in mind when I, when I ran this campaign. And on the other hand, so my game, Paris Gondo, The Life-Saving Magical Inventory, it's a GM-less game, but turns out that I'm not a big fan of GM-less games, <laughs> actually. Uh, except except uh, when I started playing some games, which were, just to, to sum up my little issue, it's not a, a, a criticism of GM-less games, it's just uh, my personal approach. I'm a architect. And especially when I was a student, we were designed by committee. We have a group of creative people and try to come up with an idea together. And when a student was especially tedious because we didn't have a hierarchy, a leadership, and so on, uh, you know, to to make decisions. And when I play some GM-less game, I 
it reminds me of that experience, which can be very exciting for a lot of people. It is for a lot of people. But for me, it reminds me of aspects of work, which are, I don't like that much. Except when you have GM-less games, which are more structured, like uh, Becoming, which I keep forgetting, again, I keep forgetting the full name of, but it's a game in which uh, it's more a multi-game master game uh, in which you play uh, the three players playing sort of a game mastery role, I guess. Each of them play a fate, you know, with the tread of destiny. And there's only one player who plays a protagonist. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a very set structure for the game. Uh, another example is uh, Sonya and Conan versus the ninjas. Uh, there you play, three players play ninjas, one play Conan the Barbarian or Sonia the Barbarian or another Barbarian. But the, everybody's got very specific roles, but also there's a there's a very specific structure which really brings your adventure to a, a start, a middle of a conclusion, whatever that shape would be, it would be. And, and this inspired my own game, which got six steps, which are very set. And there's really no way out of them. But that's something which is agreed for the players. So I guess on one hand, you got trad games where it needs to be agreed between the players and it's outside the system. And then you've got uh, indie games which or more narrative games which might have a structure built in the, the system. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating because playing games is in this strange space where it's it's a story we want it like you said we want it to feel narratively interesting narratively impactful we want it to hit these story beats and a lot of times that is all on the gm to try to finesse the story beats in without really alerting the players that this is happening it's this big puppet show that's happening uh and if you don't have those beats you do you run the risk of the players aren't satisfied. There's not a story arc that finishes. Last week, we talked about total party kills in the climax of the game. These things that can wreck the mood entirely of a game and, and for lack of a better word, ruin it. Uh, I, I, I think there's, there's the heavy rigid structure that we often associate with railroading, but there are elements of that that make a story work that you don't get out of real life. Like my real life story is not going to have a story arc where it has a beginning, middle and end other than my age. Uh, <laughs> there's not going to be like some grand um, climax and then denouement at the end. But we want that in our games. I, I, I just, I find it really fascinating. Would you mind sharing the, the, the steps that happen in your game and how you came about structuring those? Oh sure. Uh, so so the Gun Paris method got six steps. Uh, the actually it's seven because there's a step zero, uh, which is part of we uh, explain safety tools and so on. But it's all, it's all built in the game. So you there's sort of scripts and prompts, which uh, the, the whole point of session zero is not only you know the practical aspect of safety. Uh, and knowing each other's, but it's also uh, getting people in the mood. So uh, there's a, a lot of flavor text, which is used as part of the onboard, you know, getting people on board with safety tools. Something inspired by my experience here in London, when you show up for a game right after work, often you're very stressed, you're in a pub, it's noisy. So you need something to, to break from the rest of your day. So that was the goal of, of the step zero. Then you got the first step, which is the dungeon. Uh, the players create the dungeon together. Eventually they can roll prompt to do so. Step two is the party. So the players create their characters. It's very light touch. Uh, they pick a, a character class, uh, an adventure class among six. And then they come up with a description which needs to highlight the objects from the starting inventory of the, the adventure because uh, objects, loot, and inventory is all the team of the game. So that's step two. Step three uh, you uh, roll your loot, if I'm not uh, mixing up things. So you roll the stat for your loot and you describe it to uh, the rest of the group. And step four is the life-saving magic or inventory. You're going to trade this loot and decide what you keep and what you throw away because it does not spark joy. Uh, because <laughs> I, uh, love, I love that. <laughs> 
Yeah, and because you're limited, you cannot keep everything from your starting inventory and from the new exciting looted items you found. So you need to make difficult decisions and you trade objects with the others. And the point is you role play all those scenes. And then step five is the journey home. So you're going to go back home after your adventures. Yeah, the, the game starts where most adventure ends. You start the game. Uh, the premise is that you already reached the end of the dungeon and you defeated the boss of a dungeon. So all the information you come up with about the dungeon, the boss, and the looted items are, are sort of happening after the the fact in world so step five you go back home no you you yeah you go back home which includes trying to get out of the dungeon depending on what you kept or threw away it's more or less likely you will succeed then you once you're out of the dungeon everybody's part ways or don't uh, they if they wish so but they they go home and they describe what they consider is their home and we find out whether or not they succeed to go home so that's a journey home step five and finally step six the emotional epilogue is when you we find out if the objects that they kept will bring joy in their life. Will they have a fulfilling experience till the rest of mm. their days, uh, wherever they ended up? So each step you do something very different. Each step also has got a very specific purpose in a, a knock of an adventure. And and literally the final step is the denouement step. Uh, it's the emotional epilogue. And that you have it. So this is really, really set. That's a very, very heavy framework. But at the same time, then people are absolutely free to describe whatever they want. If if Darth Vader wants to show up uh, riding a unicorn uh, while singing Maria He, Maria Ho, uh, it's absolutely fine. Uh, there's no problem with that. But that's a paradox. The freedom of describing whatever they want comes from the fact that it won't imperil the arc of the game or, or the, the shared story because there's a very heavy structure within which this is happening. I think that that, because you said that this is, it's GMless. And I, I agree with you, like the, the nebulous nature of the stories in a GMless game, whether that's a journaling game, like a solo journaling game or a game even like... Um, fiasco where there's not a gm and people are just kind of making things up within a structure i also like these games to know kind of where things are going and have this agreement about where things are going and i i think it's a it's a really good idea as a gm to to think about those things in advance or at least like in a session zero even if you're playing a game like dungeons and dragons deciding like okay well we want to hit certain beats right we want we want this to feel epic and and cool so how can i'm I'm curious about both of your opinions how can we as gms put into the game these story beats or even in a jamless game put into these games of the story beats without making it feel like we're bossing around our players or making them feel like they're railroading making them feel like their choices still matter and impact the game i found myself thinking as we were talking here and just before we started talking i was like oh i made a game that totally does that that's die laughing it's 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 structured based on act one act two and act three of a movie which Mm -hmm. are which is a formula there's an expectation of what act one is introduces the characters and then there's the inciting moment it's the moment where something changes the villains introduced the plot changes something about the protagonist's world is thrown into upheaval then there's act two which you know series of escalations and then at the end of act two there's usually some sort of turn where either the stakes really jack through the roof or some major information is revealed there's a twist there's something that kind of propels you into the resolution and then you run through the act three and I found myself thinking, in, you know, like as we often do, falling back to D and D. You know, high level char- <laughs> high level characters in D and D are kind of superheroes. So if you want to, you could have an implied or even explicit understanding with your players and talk about it a little bit and say, we're going to play this campaign like it's Marvel movies. Marvel movies have a formula. There's a there's a set number of beats. There's things that happen. Um, there's usually you know introduced characters. There's some low stakes action sequence that is either set up background fun bashing between Thor and, 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 and the Hulk or whatever. 
Um, and then there's the act one turn, the inciting moment. There's something the villains re revealed, you know, something Loki shows up, you know, Thanos has the, has, you know, shows up, whatever. Um, then there's a series of escalations that jump back and forth between action, downtime, action, downtime. And every downtime is sort of, it's solving a puzzle or it's, um, you know, figuring out what the plan is or whatever. There's like, there's some, and it's usually character driven. That's where you get all your great character development of like in the banter between characters. And there could be the expectation that that's going to be like, you know, okay, it's downtime character. It's time for everybody to be witty with each other and we'll have great role play. Um, and develop, you know, a plan or whatever. And then there becomes like the big moment that turns you into act three. And you could, you could take that basic structure, which is, you know, it's the three act structure that many films follow, but it also Marvel kind of has a way of doing it. If that's what you want to do, you want to have super heroics, you got to have like, you know, the big action sequence every so often, and they can be smaller scale action, you know, combats or, or other types of action sequences, um, races against time, or those those types of things that build to the big climactic one at the end. And you could build that with, and even talk to the players beforehand and say, "Hey, we're going to play this kind of like Marvel movies." I think that like that's really good advice right there. Is as as a GM, just like figuring out the genre that you're playing in. The story beats are going to be different, like in a room in a romantic comedy. They get together, they break up over a misunderstanding, they get back together, just a general arc there. But for fantasy, there are different expectations. For horror, there are different expectations. For comedy, etc. cetera. Uh, and figuring those out, I think, is a huge first step for sure. Uh, I, I got really into the 27 chapter method. I can't remember who, who does this, but it's, a, it's an outline for like writing novels. And it follows a three-act structure, and each act is divided into, like, nine different parts. Yeah, nine, because it's 27. And it it kind of brings you through a journey that you can overlay on the top of a, not every story, but a lot of stories. And following a guide like that can be a great way to jump into this, this story beat structure. Uh, just finding the right one, the right one that works for you. Just one thing to... To, to clarify, I mean, it's sort of my approach to everything, whatever uh, I, I, the proposal I made of things mm -hmm. are question of taste. So uh, the first thing, this is the type of play I like. You mentioned railroading. I'm a big defender of railroading, although what actually railroading or what is not might be up to debate. I've noticed that for most people, railroading is de facto uh, something bad. <laughs> And then right. they make a laundry list of everything which I consider poor railroading. I think the so first thing, there's absolutely nothing wrong, I think, in playing a type of adventure campaign, uh, which is quite common in DD, which is you go off on your adventure and you find out things. And this kind of things which the, the dungeon master, the game master, is trying to, you know, uh, make happen and have a grand scheme, but the truth is, is that uh, the actions of the players must might mess that complete mm -hmm. completely. They go to talk to the the goblin NPC in the bar, you know, all the tropes and so on of D&D, which is a part of its charm. And it's absolutely fine to to play any game like that if that's what you want. And on the other hand, here I am talking about structure play. I think where I personally encounter issues, and I think uh, probably not the only one is, well, two things, a, a lack of self-awareness of what actually, what is going on in a role-playing game, especially behind the, the screen, uh, and which results the, in the second thing, which is a sort of a, uh, a very heavy charge on the game master. So the, the lack of self-awareness is this idea that, okay, we can play this game, which is, air quote, anything can happen, but then, People need to be self-aware, either self-aware that that will mean that people can get TPK'd at the final fight or at a moment which is not, you know, narratively meaningful. You know, they're doing the D&D movie right now and people are talking, oh, it would be fun if uh, in the middle of the movie, uh, the, the story was completely wrecked because that's what happened in D&D. You know, it's, it's part of D&D, but... I read up that they, they will do that in the movie for, for a lot of reasons. Yeah, we'll make a good story if that happens. Yeah, and and if that's what it is, it's fine. But the problem is that people expect 
to play like that and then put it on the shoulder of the game master to still somehow work out their magic of having those arcs and beats, which people are not aware of, Mm -hmm. but they are familiar with. And to some extent, they expect because of their conception of entertainment. And then you fall in the camp of, for a long time, you know, again, I'm developing my own self-awareness because for a long time, the way I was sort of processing that was that I like railroading. I want a railroading game master, but a good railroading game master, a quantum ogre railroading will manage to make me unaware of it. I would compare that to, you go see a a magician, Mm -hmm. you know, you you know, most magical show you will see, you go check. Most people in the audience are aware that there are tricks. You are being tricked, but you, you buy in into getting tricked. And, but there's this problem I find in role-playing game that, oh yeah, but uh, there you manipulated the story. So we fit back in your structure. Yeah, because if you don't do that, you're not back in the structure. So I think you need the self-awareness of this situation. And then ideally people around the table, the game master should be very clear about what's going to happen. And the player needs to be self-aware and clear about what they accept. And, you know, they, they not give away, but they hand a part of their, a form of their agency to the game master so that they can, they can structure, they can keep things in check. And it's a spectrum of how far you go in one direction or another. But the problem for me really is, is expecting to everything to fall into place magically right, right. Uh, while running a fully simulationist game uh, where, yeah, you just stat up Star Wars and suddenly the the plot of Star Wars happened just <laughs> through sheer luck of dice rolls. No, that's a great uh, point because I was literally looking at the, uh, the hero's journey circle um, as you were talking about that. And I was finding myself thinking like, okay, the characters start in the ordinary world. There's the call to adventure. And the next step is the refusal of the call. But usually the players are like, well, we're adventurers. So we're supposed to go off on the adventure. Well, you can have refusal of the call. And then there's the meeting with the mentor and whatever it is that draws you into the story and pointing out that it's okay to talk about that at the table. It's okay to vocalize that. I think one of the things Kelm's talking about where it's, it's, it's get placed, it gets placed on the GM is because even if the players know this structure exists and they're kind of expected to do it, there is perhaps a feeling of like, I shouldn't talk about it because that kind of breaks the immersion of and the yeah. illusion of what we're trying to do. And it's like, but you're perfectly fine with making Monty Python quotes um, and talking about what was on, you know, what was the last episode of Westworld in between scenes during the game, but you don't want to talk about like the, you know, the structure of the story. What well, like that's perfectly acceptable if, if you know, like players can talk about like, oh, oh, this is the point where we cross the threshold and we're really off on adventure. Like, like just as a player, you can say that and the GM can reinforce that. And then you can play that part out as the character if you want to give the hero's journey um, a fairly literal playthrough. Yeah, I mean, all the best games I've ever played in, either as a GM or the player, has had a GM and a group of players who understand stories really well, and whether consciously or not, are falling into those those story beats. And, and like like Caleb, like you said, like the the best GM will will make it seem like it was all an accident. <laughs> And it's not going to be all an accident. And I'm sure even because you mentioned entertainment too, all of the actual play podcasts and streams that we like to watch, I I would be very surprised if any of them were a complete sandbox. I would be extremely surprised if you could go to any of them and not find a GM and a group of players agreeing to hit certain story beats at certain times. Otherwise, the podcast would, I mean correct me if I'm wrong, someone out there I'm sure is screaming like, oh, but mine, mine is different. I don't think that they would last very long in, in terms of enter, in entertainment value. Yeah, I did my share of actual player. I think also that there's a sort of, it's not limited to role-playing game, uh, very sadly, but people think things are either one thing or the other. So not even necessarily actual player, but, you know, one game which I find uh, somewhat 
lacking really this self-awareness, but at the same time, it's got a very strong structure usually, uh, although it's not stated, it's Call of Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a premise which is accepted among the players that their character is going to die or uh, suffer a terrible uh, uh, emotional breakdown towards the end uh, of the game. So that's accepted. So that, mm-hmm. that's already a good starting point. But yeah, it's not really told that, you know, to work a Call of Duty adventure needs to be very railroady mm-hmm. in this in its overall structure. And the reason why, personally, I defend Ray Roddy, especially for something like Call of Tulu, and it's because my best session ever of Call of Tulu was extremely Ray Roddy. But again, that doesn't mean that I'm uh, I'm just uh, I don't contribute to the story, and I just follow, you know, what the way railroading is described. That I have no agency or input in the story, and that I just play. You know, a script which would be handed to me, which can be fun. Uh, I miss my actor days. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, the reality is that I, I'm going to compare two games. So this game of Call of Tulu, investigation, very beat by beat, very clear where we were going. No way really to miss a clue and suddenly wonder. There was almost no room. There was almost no investigation or character was investigating what's going on, but everything was sort of really obvious. And maybe the game master put some clues in front of our face if we missed them at some point. I don't know. But it was quite clear at the table. And what that meant is that me personally, and I assume the other players, we didn't have to worry about the investigation. We were not there for the investigation, at least not at that session of that game that day. We were there for immersion, but in the, you know, the reaction of the character and who they were. So, and I was, that was one of the, re, the, the nice opportunities when I played, I played the um, divorced father who came to pick up his daughter after a, scoot, a scouting trip. Yeah, yeah. I've bad. played this one. What? I've played the same character. Probably. <laughs> oh, the same character. In Call so, of Cthulhu. <laughs> yeah, so you know, so you know that when uh the, the very beginning, when this divorced father comes to pick up his daughter, well, the stepfather is there because there's been a confusion about it's my weekend and so on. And and the two of them go, but I have so much a nice experience, intense experience role-playing this divorced father and i went i i'm not even sure if it's in the the pre-gen or whatever but i came up with this idea that he was a working class person and the stepfather was a doctor i think and i really played into that and we played interactions with the other player really building that up of this you know antagonism and then working together to find our our daughter because that's what mattered and but if I was there, thinking like, okay, what was the clue again? Okay, so when you did that, what should I go next? Okay, I should go there and so on. No, the thing was extremely linear and I could stop worrying about that to immerse myself. So on the menu of all the things that what tabletop role-playing can be, that day I was immersing into the psychology and worries of a character rather than fend off monster or be smart and investigate something. And uh, I played another game, which was, uh, <laughs> sorry if the, the, the game master is listening to me. Uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a frustrating experience. I didn't come clean uh, with them, but yeah, uh, I played a, okay, Cthulhu Confidential, which got a great premise, but the way it didn't click, uh, because sometimes it doesn't, and the way it was, I was really frustrated. I came in being like, okay, I'm going to play Fred Bogart versus Call of Tulu and ended up, oh, you showed up. The, uh, I go this place. That's the wrong place. You don't find anything. Okay. Uh, I go there instead. Oh, yeah, there's the right place, but it's not the right time. And I was like, uh, I, I'm not here for playing GTA, mm. going to the right place, pick the right clue at the right event. Which and again, it's not a criticism of the, the game mastering. It just didn't click in, in that point. We did not discuss that. I was not self-aware 
at the time. Uh, and, and they didn't work because I had to worry about the investigation. Why was there to, uh, to describe my character smoking cigarettes and uh, with a, a bolero hat and so on. And, and I was fine failing at things. I was like, okay, I make a role. I don't find anything. Nothing happened. That's the worst. Please bring mooks who's going <laughs> to rough me up. Mm-hmm. But at least something happened in, the, in that movie, which adds, was kind of the proposal. You see to the confidential and the cover, my, my expectation, uh, again, we did not, this maybe does not discuss that well enough, was that, okay, I'm going to play a noir movie, Call of Tulu, and in the end, it was more, more gamey, more, the challenge was the investigation, and I was not, I, I was not there for that, hence the, the situation. Again, not a bad game, just uh, not suited expectations and, and proposal. I'm I'm so happy that you brought up that particular adventure from Call of Cthulhu because I that was my first ever t- experience playing Call of Cthulhu was I'm I'm sure that we're talking about the same one because you you said it was a pre-generated character and everything right we need to find the name of that adventure I'm so frustrated yeah. because this game was recorded but the recording got lost oh. like a uh, lost in the Miskatonic University or something and I <laughs> won't ever be able to to listen to it. The only time I recorded something with uh, oh no it was the first time I, I, I recorded again since then with Joe Trier from All Reroll Podcast. If you like Call of Tulu uh adventure or reroll podcast you could much worse than that but sorry <laughs> no 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 that's i think that's that's awesome but i i really enjoyed the linear gameplay of that too it was not really the kind of experience i had had playing games before then and i got really into the role i think i was the stepdad though and not the divorce dad not i'm thinking because i've played a really stuck up person but it so was, you were, the, it was you were the person who showed up on the wrong day because that was my weekend <laughs> <laughs> Fight, 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 fight. <laughs> Sorry, I don't want to fight. I don't want to fight. <laughs> um, I know it was your weekend, but come on. You're not that reliable anyway. <laughs> um, so I, I like that linear gameplay. Because even confidential, I also think, I mean, it's set up to be very linear. It's that two-player game structure, GM and player. You have to have those story beats for something like that. Otherwise, it does fall apart. It there's no one to fill in the gaps. The 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 onus of the gameplay needs to be concentrated somewhere. Um, it, it needs it needs to get done. So I I I, I like that you brought up those two examples. Those are it's those. funny to look confidential. It's got this reputation, but I'm not sure to what extent it's made explicit in mm-hmm. the text of the game. Uh, again, Call of Tulu, I find as a game. Uh, it's a game I I find imen- immensely frustrating and pleasing at the same time because. Uh, because it's coming from this long history and tradition, I find they're really way too subtle with the way they, they, they explain some aspects which are really core for the game, but which are more part of the of sort of a culture of, of things. So, so sometimes it's a, it's a bit weird how, okay, that's the premise, that's the structure, but there's so much which is untold uh, from, pe- uh, from people uh, because it comes yeah from... Way, way back. <laughs> it's got this <laughs> reputation of being the first narrative-focused role-playing game. I mean, there, there were others, but yeah, milestone of more narration-focused games versus wargaming tactical games. And, and at the same time, uh, if you look at the rules, the system... And I, I love the people at Chaosium. I know several of them in person, and that's absolutely uh, amazing. But uh, I find because they, 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 they got this community, yeah, you would look at the game on its own, you like, that's not a narrative game uh, because you, there's so much f- more things which are really obvious about this aspect much more than, than Call of Duty. And it's not just rolling dice and so on. It can be about, yeah, knowing the structure. We could probably talk about this for a long time but we also have a structure in our podcast and the other half of the- oh i love a good segue i know i I'm, I'm really rooting for next year the ennies need to have a podcast category for best segue and it's just, just me winning all the time so <laughs> our structure is we're gonna go into talking about game design we talked about it a little bit at the beginning of this because i think that they are so inter- intertwined 
um, with, with the story beats, because you want to find a, a, ideally, if you want to play a game with story beats, you play a game with story beats and you don't have to invent them whole cloth as a GM. But we are talking about something else. Off that topic, Craig, what is it? I think I, I could describe it as iterative development and release. It's, it's the game designer hero's journey, actually. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's the idea we so often, and we've talked about it this way on the, on the podcast on a number of occasions. I think a lot of uh, designers out there, certainly the big companies tend to be like, okay, we do all the work, all the work, all the work, all the work, make the game, make the game, and then it's out and boom, and that's it. It's done. There might be errata, you know, but that it's all kind of, it all comes out at once. But there is a growing community of people in the game design realm who are taking it in stages and steps and where they are um, developing the rudiments of the game, kind of taking the first stab and they're releasing that and putting it out there, making it available. It's just people can try it out and play it if they want to provide feedback. Sometimes that's, you know, they, they build, the designer builds that into the process. Um, and it might go through multiple iterations of development and release where we're con- they're constantly sending, putting out new, slightly revised versions of the game. Um, and then getting eventually to what they're kind of calling the final version of the game, which may just be, okay, now here's the last version of the game. And in some cases, if somebody has a game that is really kind of like they're ready to like take it to the next level, that may be the, now, now we crowdfund, now we do something where we're going to put like some really good art into it and everything before maybe we just had stock art and or some graphic design choices that kind of spruce the page up. Um, but, and they're going to kind of take it to that next level. So. Callum, you did that with Periscondo, where you kind of iterated in development and release. And I've seen it quite a bit in itch.io communities. Mm. Um, it's less, reg- less less common. I think probably I drive through RPG because I think the expectation usually is more that something something yeah. that goes up there is, yeah. is, is probably the ad- finished version, usually. It's actually an advice I was given I was, uh, as I was developing my game that I should whatever I put on drive through should be something which is a certain level of finish because that's the expectation and the culture of the community over there. So it's, it's very interesting you, you raise that because, yeah, that's, that's what I was told by a lot of people in the industry that, yeah, drive through is for finished things. Yeah. I think that they're even in the future, maybe going to start enforcing more of that culture as policy judging from some of the things that they've really drive through RPGs released in terms of statements, but that's just me thinking it, and reading between the lines. It could be at the same time, wrong. you know, there are different levels of things. So yeah. I, there are, we, we go through in more in the detail of Paris Gondo, but what I find interesting and a topic interesting to bring up is because, so now I'm planning a Kickstarter, but now I realize also that other projects, which I too were finished by uh, designers, are now going or just went recently to Kickstarter. So Mothership was at a life as a zine for a while uh, with a very interesting format, uh, not even, you know, matte soft cover, not even glossy. And then they had a Kickstarter after, I don't know, several years of existence. Uh, and it's still called Mothership. It's not even, it doesn't have a, a Mothership 2 or there's something like that, as far as I know. Uh, the Gauntlet did Brindlewood Bay, which again was a game I told, okay, I thought it was done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it's, it's got a Kickstarter now. And, um, and where I am in my project, I was really uh, reluctant about going Kickstarter uh, because I expected that it would be too much stress and so on. And because of my journey now I'm at the point where I need to do a Kickstarter but a lot of little dominoes were put in the right place uh, maybe not in the right order but and and now that should be happening but in a much more uh, comfortable fashion than if I would have going with my first ever game uh, throwing myself at the Kickstarter campaign I mean the the decision to make a Kickstarter can be very very difficult to do in general because now you're putting yourself if you don't have a finished game that you're a kickstarting now you are like locked in to finishing this game otherwise your your reputation your credibility as a designer is on the line uh and if you fail that kickstarter motorcycle if you (laughs) if you if that kickstarter doesn't fund 
what is that going to do to your confidence as a designer? Is that going to mean you don't make that game? Oh, it's 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 very interesting this this type of crowdfunding that that a lot of indie gamer like indie game designers rely on. I actually don't think is very conducive to the in, the development of indie games. Even though I like for my big my big games, I've exclusively funded on Kickstarter so far. So I, I it's I I have I would have no advice if someone asked me should I should I do itch funding first or should I like do this iterative game design first I would have nothing to say I I, I would be just as lost as they were <laughs> I mean uh, so, sorry uh, Greg uh, j- I just want to, to react quickly on that and just say uh, do whatever is fitting for you the, right. the reason I was keen to discuss that tonight today or this morning depending on your time zone and when you're listening to this uh, maybe in the shower <laughs> uh, when you're bed L- no <laughs> Uh, is that um, I found that because a lot of people show up on shows uh, to to discuss because they have a live Kickstarter. That's often the you know the the kind of image that you have of, of projects that people went to Kickstarter and they're doing this thing with all this art and so on. And uh, no, there are other stories. Uh, there are other ways to do things, and uh, you got other options. Uh, if the Kickstarter from the get go option is fitting for you, go ahead and do it. But but you don't have to, and you you don't even have to crowdfund at all uh you and you can you know put steps on uh, the investment you're going to put uh, in your game i released a text only version but when i did so uh, because it was me i had already paid a professional editor chris s sims who worked on the player's handbook for since all the player's handbook for dnd since 3.5 4 and 5th and uh, he did the editing, and then I released it as a text only, and then I had it art, uh, I had a graphic designer, and so on, and, and now a Kickstarter. But uh, yeah, you you don't have to, but yeah, just an upcoming project now. I want to rather than a finished text, I want to publish on Itch.io a draft and try to benefit in its development from the feedback of the community over there. But if it's not your thing. It's not your thing. And if you like to read something on each funding and you don't care about, uh, air quote, making it a big, big Kickstarter project or something which is about money or reaching a certain number of people, you just read it on each show and, and it's fine. Just just find what what's good for you, what, what you prefer. But there are options. Sure. I mean, there's Patreon as well, where you could just, like, just slowly build something on Patreon. Um, you may not have like a lot of, like you said, reaching followers can be the, the tough part. That, well, it is the tough part um, yeah. uh, for, a, for a big thing, you know, big crowdfunding um, campaign like Kickstarter. But like if you've got a dedicated, you know, a small dedicated fan base of people that want to see this game made, like just, you know, slowly kind of punching it, punching it out over the course of time um, via Patreon with those people helping. And they're just happy to see like the process. They're like, they're like, I get to be involved and in just kind of seeing what's going on and getting to see iterations of the game as it goes that can you can do that versus via itch you can do it uh, via patreon it's interesting because like jess you and i we've we've recommended on here for like first-time game designers like maybe start with a small game well here's an alternative if you're thinking about this maybe you go ahead and start with that big game that you really want to do but maybe you start small maybe you start with here's the basic rules some pre-generated characters and an adventure text and you put only. that out there mm-hmm. text only maybe a little bit of graphic design you're like you have fun with fonts and just make it like more interesting to look at right <laughs> um and uh you know you could you could do that and then just kind of slowly build up from that rather than necessarily starting with just a small game and kind of building up to larger games later it's something that it it has existed and it, it makes me think a little bit real quick too like at drive through rpg the one thing you do see for the iterative development process is you see ash cans which is a coin from a comic book term um but an ash can is the it's a preview version it's like here's just a short like just just a little bit of the game with like and i i've done this i had a capers preview edition i had it on pdf for a couple bucks i sold it at local conventions for a t- it was a ten dollar booklet it's not free they're there for your email address <laughs> yeah yeah that's true and uh uh you know but but it gave you it got you it got like something into the hands of people it allowed you to talk to people about it 
even if you didn't have playtest feedback coming in, you could talk to them at a convention or online or whatever, and they might say some things that spark some things in you. And it helps the development process of just like, oh, somebody mentioned, like, you should have this in there. And I was like, I had never thought of that. I should absolutely have that in there. And now we're back to the drawing board and we're going to add that in for the next iteration. And so you can kind of, you know, you, you can build that process to the extent that you want. And I think the, 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 the biggest point I want to throw out there for this particular topic in this episode is that the option exists and to encourage people that if that's like the way that you can approach it, if you want to get something out there, even if it's a bigger process, if you're prepared to dedicate yourself to spending the time to kind of get it through a slower iterative development and release process, you can do it. Um, it's, it's no longer um, uncharted waters. It's been done a bunch and by very successful games. Um, and by, you know, people who just said, you know, this is, this is what works for me. And you say slower uh, in some aspects, it's actually faster because I mean, even the text, uh, what is the text of a role-playing game? Is it the text that's going to be in the book or when you write your rule, you just, well, just, echoed. it's not just, you write your system like, oh, it works like this. When this happened, you roll that many dice and you got this bonus and so on and write just this in the most succinct and driest way but where the information is there and you got your structure and uh you say you take the longer road well the longer road or the short road which is the longer road is to take that structure of system that you have and already run it at conventions and it can be conventions online nowadays and it's fine so in a way it's faster because rather than waiting for your full game to be ready to run it and hand it to other people. If you just write this very succinct way of your rules, but you got your system in there and you hand it to other players, game masters, we're going to try it out. You can work out, ah, in my mind, it was clear this aspect, but actually uh, that game master tried it and they, they missed that point. It was not made legible enough uh, in the way I wrote it. But people are already playing your game mm -hmm. and yeah. you don't have the setting yet. If you want a setting, I don't have a setting in my game, but there you go. Uh, you don't have sort of the fluff one or other things and the game's going to evolve and you're going to have people engage uh, in my system. For instance, at some point I realized that, so I had the rules, but I really needed to point people in the right direction with each step. And that's when came, and because it happened as I was running demonstration slash play tests of the game, I realized actually I could come up, you know, I was starting to have a, a little speech at the beginning of each step. Oh, this step is this. And I was doing it in character. We, we're going to be exposed right now to the philosophy of Paris Gondo, this uncorporeal being multidimensional. I said, well, actually I can make it a script. And at first I did it for myself because rather than reinventing the wheel each time, I had the script to follow and I could riff off of it, but I was actually the script is part of the rules. Uh, but you know, that's something I would not have found out without running it. And if I waited my game to be ready, my game would be played next summer rather than being played for the last three, four years. I think it encourages a, a kind of a, a healthy creative process in that way. You're not, you're not rushing to get anything done necessarily, even if it does go faster, people are playing it right away. Uh, and it also follows some traditions of the other games industry of video games where there are big companies releasing paid betas, even sometimes free betas, a lot of times paid betas. Here's the game. It's not done, but you can play a lot of it. I've, and uh, I just played a game that was a, uh, that was a beta. I, I paid for it on Steam. I can't remember the name. You make potions. No Man's Sky has been like that. It's yeah. been in beta for two years because games are such a huge endeavor in video game night now, especially MMORPGs and so on. Yeah, and the only thing that you're fighting necessarily when you're releasing something before it's quote-unquote done is the expectations of the people who are engaging with it. But unlike like with a published book where it's a story and you're expecting the story to be finished 100% when you buy a book, there's not there's no reason to have that same expectation when you're when you're playing a game. There's no reason to expect that the rules might not might change or not or art might be added and I, I think that it just encourages you know that 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 process instead of skipping a lot of steps and just getting it done. In the past, I've joked, but it's not really joking, 
um, because it's painfully true that I've done these games where, okay, I designed the game and I play test it and then I develop and play test and develop and do that a bunch of times. And then, okay, now I get uh, somebody to design a logo for the title and I get a few pieces of artwork done and, um, and I fine tune and I fine tune and I get it in a version that I can show people. And then I go to Kickstarter and I ask permission to make my game. Yeah. Because that's kind <laughs> of what you're doing because you're coming into it in, you know, in especially early when you don't have a huge following or anything, you're having, you know, it's hard to bring a crowd. But if you do things with iterative development and release like this, you're going to build that fan base when it's not as painful <laughs> for like, oh, like I, I put this thing out there and it didn't get a lot of interest, but there's some, there's some. And I'm going to put the next version out. There's going to be a little more and you're going to slowly build that up. And so if you do get to the point, then also ultimately you want to do a larger crowdfunding effort um, and really pretty up the game and, 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 and do all that stuff. You go into that with a little more confidence and you're not asking as much permission because you've already got some people who are saying, yes, please do this. Um, so that's, I mean, there's a benefit to the process and then there's a benefit to just like where you end up yeah, in, in your mental state, um, emotionally going into the Kickstarter of like, oh, now I've got these people that are like, they're along for the ride. They're going to be there day one. They're going to back this. They're in, they're interested. They're are, they're invested figuratively and some perhaps even literally. Right. <laughs> people are going to notice that because, you know, the, this idea that if you come up with the best movie, the best book, the best game, and you just get into the world with your game, your thing, your creation, out of its sheer merits, people will find it and we will find its audience. I'm very sorry, but that's not how the work, the world works. Uh, the six, six foolish Kickstarters you've seen out there, people have been doing a tremendous foundation work with them. Uh, I know even people who did the foundation work with the first game and the first game went very well. And then they sort of be like, okay, with the expansion of the game, I can get relax a bit. And then they were like, no, didn't work. I mean, went okay because they had an established community fan of the game, but certainly was not going as far as they were hoping because they didn't do their, yeah, marketing hard uh, homework. Uh, I think, you know, as you said that, it inspires me. Maybe my Kickstarter uh, <laughs> would not be a mistake to do that. Thankfully, I got good mentors with Kickstarter, but rather than say, uh, well, people don't say that, but the idea is not, oh, please allow me to do my game is just please help me bring this to more people because that's really what I hope to do personally with Kickstarter. The game exists already. It's going to be expanded a bit, improved a bit visually and so on, two additional classes, more rules and so on. But really I need the, the people on Kickstarters. It's my pitch already. I need their help to bring that game in brick and mortar shop. I need their help to bring it in the hand of more people, I need the help to to share the game with each other and give it a, a place in their heart, which uh, I hope it's it's worthy of. Uh, yeah, so that's that's a big emotional thing for for Kickstarter. <laughs> the, the I just wanted to to point one thing which I find very convenient because I was a bit stressed out about that with uh, itch. The idea of iterative was like, oh, but if I release the text only version. And then I got the illustrated version. How do I price it? The first one and the second one. Do I give the illustrated version to the people who bought the one without, which was text only, because it would not have happened without them and so on. Actually, on each you can make sales targeted to people who bought a product of yours already. So long story short, my text only version was five dollars. The illustrated version was $10, but I gave a $5. So whatever you buy with an early version of mine, on Ichio at least, uh, it's uh, you're not going to pay that price twice. So the, the full product expands in prices because reasons, but whatever you spent on the, the first version is deducted from the, the next one. Won't be the case with Kickstarter for obvious reasons. But yeah, that's that's a neat little tool that you can use yeah. uh, on on Ichio. That that's a great 
way also to keep encouraging people to try out your I'm going to call it a beta for now, even though it is a it's a complete game to try it out and then build an audience too. And what you said about the Kickstarter, like you, you need the help to bring it to more people to bring it to brick and mortar stores. That's a way even though it's feels like more emotional for you, probably it's a more concrete call to action than, hey, give me money so I can make this game. People who are backing on Kickstarter are taking less of a risk for that to to help promote than they are giving money to a product that's not done, that's not finished, that may never come to, there are lots of Kickstarters out there that have never come to fruition and that money is gone now, Uh, but it's it's less now, it's less of a, a risk. Yeah, it's backers. a different product also. I mean, that, that right. different project, which got different needs. Certainly, if I was going out there, I mean, uh, for instance, a, a Kickstarter I supported and I was very happy with the end result was Nibiru, uh, Game of Lost Memories uh, by Federico Sons. He made a lot of work ahead of the, the release of the game, but I don't think he had all the arts, for instance, before the, the Kickstarter because that's an amazing, uh, you know, it's tremendous amount of money to, to, to cover up front. So it was really covered in terms of of moving forward with the project was a safe bet but yeah without the kickstarter the the ambition of that game is and the content is beyond uh my game which is a a a nice story game but it's not a system which is unique with a full setting with full of art and so on okay do you have anything else to add no i'm good oh i didn't (laughs) want to cut you off before i I close the podcast it's okay uh, Sorry, I'm very chatty on people's podcasts. <laughs> no, that's good. And, and if if people are saying I design a game only so I could be invited on other people's podcasts, <laughs> that's, that's an absolute lie. But, but you've been on the role list, right? Yes, I have. I've, I've <laughs> been on lots of podcasts. You had your turn. You had your turn. I'm taking mine. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. This has been a great talk. I've had a lot of fun. And uh, we want to hear more about where we can... Where can we back this Paris Gondo project on Kickstarter? So backing directly the Kickstarter, it's, it's a bit early. So full disclosure, I think this is the first place where, where I announced that. So it's for summer 2023. You know, I step very slowly and yeah. so on. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, that's it. Uh, but if you purchase a copy of the current edition, uh, which is already a full game uh, with beautiful art by Buddy Hartley, uh, edited by a professional editor who's made a who sparked joy among a lot of uh, adventurers with a strong desire to declutter their loot. You you can already purchase it on Ichio and Drive Through RPG. So that's Paris Gondo, the life saving magic of inventoring. Uh, also, I'm likely this week to release a one page RPG I wrote this weekend. Uh, which is called Don't Call Me Angel. And it's um, a Jason Statham's Big Vacation by Granta with Hack to pit Ariana Grande versus David Boreana. So, um... <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Where, where can we find you on? If, where do you want to be found on social media or the internet? So I can be found everywhere. Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I was on Vivo for a while. I still have an account there, but I don't read it. So don't, <laughs> don't contact me there because apparently it's all by all, all, all terrible people. But it's at RollistPod uh, and it's uh, R-O-L-I-S-T-E-S-P-O-D. So Rollist is French for tabletop role-playing uh, enthusiast. And, uh, and yeah, and it's rollispot.com as well uh, for my website where you find my shows, announcements when I'm attending physical and online conventions to run demonstrations of Paris Gondo. And if you want to try it, to be honest, just send me a message. If you can find a, a handful of people, uh, I'm more than happy to, uh, to accommodate, to find a, a time when I can run it for you. So, so that's it. Thanks for being on our podcast, Caleb. Yes, thank you. Thanks for having me. You can find me on Twitter at at Joska, where I'm only going to be exclusively tweeting about Nathan Fielder and my upcoming Nathan Fielder TTRPG. That's a joke, only kind of. Uh, <laughs> and you can also find me on wannabegames.com or on DriveThruR or on Itch under Wannabe Games. 
And I'm at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter. Um, my website is nerdburgergames.com and the games are all up at Drive Through RPG. My Patreon at uh, Nerdburger Craig is uh, is rolling along too. If you want to see the beginning of des- uh, design development, um, I'm kind of uh, doing iterative early stuff, and people are getting to see through the Patreon um, for Caper Cyber. I got my third round of, um, and I think it'll be the final round of um, concepting artwork today from Beth. Um, so if you want to see what superpowered cyberpunk types look like in an alternate 2020s uh we've got art uh, that'll be going out in the next uh reward for that so check it out thank you for our opening and closing theme song which is avel by steph Sachs, which was released under creative commons thank you steph Sachs, and thank all of you for listening and we'll see you back here next time bye 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 thanks <laughs> <laughs>